Oh, I didn't grab my, my remote this morning, Jesse. Can you throw it up here somehow? <laughs> It'll whack me in the face. I hadn't been doing slides, and so I haven't needed my little clicker. But this week I made some slides. Since we're starting a new book, and uh, a lot of you guys are uh, image-driven. Thank you, Dave. Um, I, I know I am. I like pictures. If, and if you ask my wife that, she'll absolutely uh, tell you that I like pictures because if I go to a restaurant and I'm trying to figure out what to order, whatever the picture is on the window, that's what I want, especially if it has guacamole. I don't care what it is, put guacamole on it, I will eat it. Well, don't call me on that. <laughs> Some of you guys are a little more ornery. Uh, but that said, First Peter the theme of 1 Peter is strangers in a foreign land. We'll get to see why that is here in a little bit, but I think that there's a lot of things that we can glean from this book, and for me, um, just studying it the last couple of days, I've really uh, been convicted about some things, and so hopefully that comes through. And anything that is convicting to you, I hope you realize that it's convicting to me too. It's convicting to me first because the reality is the Word of God is meant to maintain the believer in the life of faith. And so if you ever come across the question, why do I need to read my Bible? Well, John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to his Father. He says, sanctify them, meaning those who believe in me, by your truth. And he says, your word is truth. So if you ever need a bath as a believer, and we need regular baths physically and spiritually, The Word of God is what God uses to bathe us. It's what cleanses us. It's what uh, continually uh, grows us in grace. It's what continually feeds us so that we can continue to live by faith and not wander off and start snacking on things that aren't good for us. And so um, Peter writes on this topic of being strangers in a foreign land. So first of all, we'll start by talking about who wrote the letter. It's written by Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if you think I'm uh, very astute and I'm saying these correctly, I'm probably not. And so as you read the Bible, if you read words and you think, I don't know if this is right or not, just play it out with confidence and people won't even know. Because the pronunciation really doesn't matter. Uh, These are just places that existed. And still, some of them do exist. So Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want to point out the fact that Peter has been humbled by many circumstances. Many people say that they relate to Peter because Peter uh, failed so much, and because he was such a loud personality, when he failed, he failed big, and he failed with an audience. I like to fail when no one's looking. I like to fail and then act like it didn't happen. Um, But the reality is... um, Peter recognized his need for grace. It was the grace of God that saved him. It's the grace of God that delivered him. And so he says, I am an apostle. And the word apostle means uh, sent one. The apostles of Jesus Christ, he commissioned them. He gave them power. He gave them his Holy Spirit. He says, go out. He says, go. And as you go, Uh, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, lo, I am with you. He said, behold, pay attention. The thing that I've called you to do, I'm also going to go with you and empower you to do it. And so he told them to teach uh, his followers all the things that Jesus had taught them. So it makes sense that Peter 
and James and John and all the other, Bartholomew and some of the ones we don't recognize their names as easily, it makes sense that they would go out with this mission in mind, a mission from God, if you will, if you want to go Blues Brothers. They were going out to do what God told them to do, which was make disciples, make people disciplined in the faith, because this faith doesn't happen accidentally. So his calling is to equip the saints, to equip them to follow God faithfully and to fulfill their purpose. And so he's one of the three closest to Jesus. He, you might call him one of the inner circle if we were talking like mafia terms. You know, Jesus, is the, he's the Godfather. He literally, he's God the Son. And he's surrounded by 12 guys. He picked them out. He prayed all night. He knew them before he chose them. And then when he calls them, he picks them knowing full and well that they're not perfect. As a matter of fact, it seems like God picks people that know that they're not perfect, not the ones that think that they got it all together. Now, he calls us all to salvation, but I believe that many times it's actually those who recognize their unworthiness that are willing to receive the kingdom. But he picks Peter, James, and John out of the 12. He separates even a smaller group to call alongside him when some of the major events happen. Think of the the Mount of Transfiguration. He calls Peter, James, and John to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration where he's going to peel back the veil, if you will, on his flesh, and he reveals his glory. And at that time, if you remember, he's so bright that even the whiteness of his clothing is whiter than any launderer could get him. And he's surrounded by two individuals, Elijah and Moses. Moses representing the law, and Elijah representing the prophets. And so he reveals his glory, and then Peter says, Oh, it's so great that we're here because, you know, can we build you some tabernacles where we, you guys, places where you guys can live? And, and God speaks out of heaven and says, This is my son, listen to him. Pointing out that Jesus was better than or fulfilled the law. Don't, don't worry, don't make them equal, Peter. These are not all three equal individuals, but they're actually three individuals that I've used. But Jesus is my son. Here is my son, he says, hear him. So if you're tempted to kind of focus on the law of God and and try to fulfill it and save yourself that way, it's never going to happen. Or if your temptation is to to look at the prophetic and to try to live for like, how's this going to happen and stress out about it, it, that's not the purpose. He tells us these things ahead of time so that when they do happen, we can go, oh, he warned us about this. It was going to happen, and so his plan's being fulfilled, even though evil men are in charge right now. But in the, mean of, in the middle of it, he's saying, Jesus, he is the one that you need to listen to. He is the ultimate. And so if anything else in your life becomes the ultimate, you've missed it. Jesus is the ultimate authority. But another time Peter and James and John were taken away was actually to the Garden of Gethsemane. And here in about a month, I get to, I'm going to get to stand in this hillside full of olive groves and olive trees. And in that place, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he took them with him. And he says, stay here and pray with me. Be watchmen with me. This is the hour of temptation. We need to pray more than anything else right now because there's this thing that's getting ready to happen. So pray with me. Now it's late and they're tired. And he keeps telling them that he's going to die. So they're sorrowful, and it says there that they slept 
for sorrow. Have you ever been so sorrowful over something that's impending? You can feel the weight of it. And rather than do anything, you're like, I just need to sleep and then it'll go away. I've been so sick before. I'm like, I just sleep until the morning and I'll feel better. You know, and, and that's kind of how we get. Well, so many of us are kind of hard on Peter, James, and John. Well, they just fell asleep, didn't they know? No, they didn't. And they were human. And even Jesus, when he went to pray, he was so stressed out during that time that it says he sweat great drops of blood. He was being crushed by the weight of the responsibility that he had coming up, and he didn't want to mess it up. In his flesh, everything about him said, I don't want to be suffering. I don't want to be crushed. But yet not my will, Father, but yours. And so Peter, James, and John were invited to be a part of that, whether or not they took advantage of it. My point is, Peter's one of these men that saw these things, lived through them, and then ultimately we remember him for failing, right? We remember him for denying Christ three times because we can relate with that. Maybe we've denied Christ in our lives in pivotal points where we feel like I've just messed up the will of God. I've messed up his whole plan to save the world. And in the meantime, what is in John chapter 21, after Peter has done exactly what Jesus told him about himself first, right? He said, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. And, and of course, Peter's like, no, no, no. I, if everybody else falls away, I'll stay with you. And what does Jesus say? Uh, you're going to deny me but don't worry, I've prayed for you. I know ahead of time, fully aware that you're going to fail, and I'm going to restore you. I'm praying that even though Satan wants to sift you like wheat, I'm praying that God would take care of that and uphold you. And in John chapter 21, every one of those 12 men denied Christ. Some of them said it, some of them ran like chickens, and I would have been right there with them, I guarantee it. But what happens is, what would you do if your best friends let you down? If your family members let you down, what would you do the next time you saw them? Would it be awkward? Would you avoid it altogether? <laughs> or would you do what Jesus did? He made them breakfast. I don't know about you guys, but I don't make many of my friends breakfast. I make my children and my wife breakfast. I don't make you guys breakfast. And I love you. I care about you. But I've never made most of you breakfast, have I? Maybe. No, probably not. Oh, camping. We did that one time. But my point is, Jesus had been rejected and denied by the people that he spent the most time with, and he wasn't disappointed. He was, I think he was disappointed, but not to the point where he said, I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. He makes them breakfast, and he talks to Peter individually. He says, hey, do you love me? Peter says, well, of course I do. Of course, you can tell that he probably felt defeated in that. Well, yeah, of course I love you. I really messed up, you know but I love you. And then he says, feed my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? He asked him three times. Now, if somebody asks you three times whether or not you love them, you start to wonder if they're questioning whether or not you actually mean what you say. You know, you just saying the L word again? You know, like, what does that mean? Apparently, love doesn't mean the same to me as it does to you. But you don't sense this in Jesus. He didn't condemn him. He was drawing him in. He was showing him, like, you do you really love me with your whole heart, Peter? And Peter finally responds, and he says, of course I love you. Why do you keep asking me this? And then Peter is said to by Jesus, then feed my sheep. And he sends him, and he commissions him, and he restores him. He loves him. And so Peter is this special apostle that has experienced the grace 
and the peace of God. And so he's writing to this group. So he's a recipient of much grace. And so, um, unbeknownst to me, I went through the whole thing there. So he's writing to this group that he calls the diaspora in the Greek, or the dispersion. He calls them pilgrims. Now, these are not the uh, buckles on the shoes pilgrims. These are not the, you know, making corn and putting fish and Sacagawea or whatever else. These aren't pilgrims. In a way, they are, and in a way, they're not. Um, But he says here, I'm writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what I want to point out is this is a real place in real history that now is called something else. So on the first, on the left-hand side of your screen there, I have for you, there's kind of a gray square around this area. To the left of it is a place called Achaia, which is our modern-day Greece. Um, But to the right, we have what we call Asia Minor in the Bible, and it's modern-day Turkey I have for you on the right. And what I want to point out is, is this is a very Gentile area, but he's writing to this dispersion of Jewish Christian believers. Now, how did they get there? Now, remember, on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 saved. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Peter shared a message from the Old Testament. He explained that Christ had to suffer. He explained that Christ is the Messiah. And all the people that were there for Passover, uh, sorry, not Passover, but actually harvest, uh, Pentecost. They were there for Pentecost, the Old Testament feast of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit was poured out. And on that day, many were saved. And the people that were gathered there for the feast were from nations all around them. All these Jews that were scattered abroad were brought back for the feast that they were given in the Old Testament. To, it, it's a family meal. God had feasts in the Old Testament as family meals. I say family meals because in our day and age, we don't do family meals anymore, by and large. But family meals are meant in families to retain the identity of the family through the passing on of tradition, through the passing on of belief and faith, through the passing on of our heritage, through the passing on of the story of how we became the family that we are. Recounting the story. Well, it's no different in the family of God because they were sons of Jacob. They were sons of Abraham. They had descendants all the way from Adam. They were God's people. And so every year there were multiple feasts where everybody would get together and recount Passover, recount Pentecost, recount the Feast of Booths where they were in the wilderness and God sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years. And so, but what happened is that after Pentecost, there was a young man by the name of Stephen who was the first martyr. And because of his boldness in the faith as a deacon in the church, he shared a testimony about Jesus with the religious people around him. And because he called Jesus God, they were incredibly mad at him. They were calling him a blasphemer, and blasphemers get stoned to death. So they stoned Stephen to death for his boldness in Christ. And when that happened, it's, it was like blood in the water on Shark Week. There were, it was chum in the water, and then all of a sudden, all these sharks, these religious people that rejected Jesus as the Messiah, start looking for ways to persecute the church and shut down the message of Jesus. 
So what happens is it becomes the wind that God uses to scatter the faithful to all the corners of the earth. I have for you in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, probably you can't read it, but a dandelion. And in there it has Acts chapter 8, verse 4 that says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So as believers, we get scattered by life's events. And God sends, we may see it as like my boss did this, or my family did that, or the bank did this, or, or whatever circumstances. Life dealt me a bad set of cards, but wherever you are right now, if you will recognize that God has foreordained you to be there, and you stop being bitter and complaining about it, God wants to grow you and make you fruitful where he has placed you. And I'm looking at a room full of people that probably have things going on that they are not happy with in their life. They're disappointed in how things turned out. And I think we all have those things, whether it looks like we don't or not. We may look at other families and go, well, if I had their circumstances, then my life would be uh, insurmountably better. But the reality is we all have disappointments. And we can either look at them as circumstances that just is what it is, or we can look at it like, God placed me here, how can I be faithful? And so Peter's writing to this group that is not a group, that's dispersed everywhere, and he's writing to them the same thing. He says, uh, you are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Did you know that you, just like Peter, were handpicked by God according to his foreknowledge of your response to his picking you? Is God in control? Did he pick me? Or do I have free will to respond? And I'm going to tell you that the Bible teaches both. We have free will. Otherwise, we're just robots and there's no point in thinking. But God chose you. And he chose you for a holy calling. So he calls us pilgrims. Another word for that would be sojourners or exiles. Now, sojourners sounds cool. Like we're in our hippie vans, we're just wandering around the continent, just free as a bird, I'm going to stay here tonight, and then I'm going to go there, and I'm going to see that Grand Canyon. Who wouldn't want to be free to just go see everything you've ever wanted to see? But sojourners in this case is not like that for them. They didn't get a choice. They got uh, flushed out like a bunch of rats. Um, They got sent to the four corners. Many of them are living in places wherever they could afford They took as much as they could carry. They're living wherever they could afford. And here now they are, and they still believe in Jesus. So who are these people? They're who God chose according to his foreknowledge. And and how does he set them? How does he choose them? How does he make them his people? Well, he sets them apart. He sanctifies them for his purposes. His purposes, by the way, are holy. They're holy. They're of him. They're perfect. They're mature. And what's funny is he says, you are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and sanctification of the Spirit. So maybe you're here and you're saying, well, okay, God chose me, but I'm not much. That should probably be our attitude in some ways. And in other ways, we should be like just thankful that he chose us, whether we're not much or whether we think much of ourselves. He didn't choose you because he looked at your baseball card stats and goes, man, look at their batting average. I could use them on my team. That's not how God picks. Um, He chose you based on your willingness to choose him back, to receive him. And so the reality is we all come in with nothing to offer. 
He chose Peter, James, and John. And a couple slides ago, I had for you a picture in the background, two guys in a boat fishing. He saw guys from Capernaum. He looked out on the Sea of Galilee. He says, hey, Peter, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And Peter was like, uh, we've been fishing all night, buddy, and I'm a commercial fisherman. We ain't caught nothing. But okay, what do we got to lose? We need to catch fish, and you don't catch fish unless you throw the net in the water. So they throw the net in the water. And Peter, not knowing who this guy is, throws the net in the water. They all gather. They do their whole fishing deal. They pull the net up, and it is so full of fish that the boat is almost swamped. We're not talking about an ocean liner. We're not talking about a commercial fishing boat like you've seen on Most Dangerous Catch or whatever the show is. We're talking about a fishing boat about the size that these two guys are in, but there's like six guys in there. They're pulling in the nets, and they're so heavy that it almost swamps the boat. And Peter stops and goes, don't speak to me, Lord. Uh, You're too good for me. You're holy. I don't know who you are, but I'm an unworthy man. And so at that moment, he says, Peter, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Now that you know how little you are worthy, I'm going to make you worthy. And the message of the gospel is not that you are worthy and you're so great that God chose you. The message of the gospel is none of us are worthy. No man is worthy of the love of God. And then he picks us and he says, let me make you worthy. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'd like to go to church, but I've got to get this area of my life fixed first. <laughs> if you're going to go fix it, you're going to make it worse. So why don't you just come now before it gets worse? And then when you come, uh, let me just know that I clean every fish that I catch. So um, back to our other slide. Um, he's called us to a holy calling. He does this by sanctifying us. That means that he's setting us apart for his holy purpose. That's why he saved us. But let me ask you, what is our purpose as the church? What has God saved us for? He writes here in this passage, um, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for. Did you know that we've been saved for something? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we've been saved for good works, not by good works, but for good works. But what are those good works? There's so many things that we could do with our time and our efforts to do good things. There are organizations out the wazoo that are built to do humanitarian work and social work. Our government has set apart different organizations to deal with child care, and we've got Department of Child Services, and we've got um, departments for uh, federal relief when tornadoes come through. That's what's going on in Jeff City. What, what am I, what's my purpose as a believer? Because we only have so much time, right? We only, only have so much strength. We only have so much finances. So as Christians, we are in Christ. We've been called to a holy purpose. What is it? Why are we supposed to go to church? Why are we supposed to be the church? What are we supposed to do as the church? He says the purpose is we've been called for, we've been sanctified and cleansed, set apart for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the first one I get, I get the obedience thing. I've got kids. But what the heck is the second one? For the sprinkling of blood? That's gross. What's that mean? 
What are you getting at, Peter? So in the Old Testament, we have this picture of sprinkling. But before we get there, let's talk about obedience. Because Jesus, on multiple occasions, talked about obedience. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaking. Matthew chapter 7, speaking to a mixed group. Those that think that they're doing all the right things and judging other people that aren't. And those that know they're not doing the right things and just kind of live in their own way. And Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now don't stop there because your Bibles, many of them have a, chat, a break there, but continue to read because it's fluid. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, he's saying, therefore, after that, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So what gives us the right to enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's, it's just doing the will of the Father. Now, it doesn't get us in. It's not uh, our payment to get in. But it proves what we say we believe. But then turn to Luke chapter 6. A couple books to the right, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Chapter 6 and verse 43 In verse 43, it says, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. Then he goes on to talk about a, a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. So again, this call for obedience that's also in the Great Commission. He says, baptize all those that you teach in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to what? Obey all that I have commanded you. So obedience is a big piece of our faith. But then he says, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, which takes us to the Old Testament. This was the sprinkling of blood is what was used to purify and cleanse the holy instruments. They built the tabernacle, and then they built the temple, and it was all a meeting place where they would meet with who? God. But in this meeting place, the only person that could go into this meeting place was who? The priest. But even when the priest would go in, he couldn't go in unless he went in under the covering of the blood of an innocent animal. And he'd have blood applied to his garments, 
He'd have blood applied, and then he would take in blood of this lamb, and he would apply it to the altar, to the, the pieces of the altar. And in Luke chapter 16, you might have, or excuse me, in Leviticus chapter 16, you might have said one time, I'm going to read the whole Bible. I'm going to find out what God has for me. And then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, I don't know if I can read the whole Bible. Because there's all this creepiness about cutting up animals and spreading blood, and I don't think we have to worry about that stuff anymore. But unless you know all the work that it took to make a place to meet with God, and the only way you could enter into the Holy of Holies, you cannot appreciate the gift that Jesus is because we no longer have to have blood sprinkling when we go into the Holy of Holies, but it's been applied to us, it's been applied to our lives, and we've been set free and forgiven from the law. He's done it for us. Jesus' blood gives us free entrance anytime we want, and yet we don't take advantage of it because we don't realize what a gift it is because we haven't read super inspiring passages like Leviticus 16. Now, it's not always the most inspiring because it's confusing, but in the light of Christ, it's a blessing. So in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. So you could actually be a high priest, qualified and called, but not coming in the way that God prescribed and trying to do your job the wrong way would get you killed healed. And so verse 3 says, thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body. So there's all this preparation in it. We don't have to come in clothed anyway. He says, put off the old man and his deeds and put on Christ as a garment whiter than any launderer can get him. And then when we approach this way, clothed in Christ, he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. And then if you fast forward, he starts sprinkling blood on everything. Sprinkling blood on everything for purification, for, to be set apart, because otherwise it's just wood, it's just bronze, it's just silver, it's just gold, that's all it is. But with the blood of this animal, it's made holy for the use of worshiping and meeting with God. And so, with all that said, preparation and cleansing before anyone could come into God's presence, even the high priest. So if you've turned to the New Testament in Hebrews where we were just at uh, maybe uh, six months ago in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19. Here's what it says. When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself And all the people saying, this is the blood of the agreement or the covenant which God has commanded you. 
Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And look at this, without the shedding of blood or the sprinkling of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Without the sprinkling of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So the priest's main duty is this, to represent man to God and to represent God to man. But here's the deal. The New Testament teaches in 1 Peter, in this same book, in chapter 2, this very thing. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. That's James. First Peter 2, verse 9 says this, But you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are his own special people. In, some, in the King James, it says, you are his peculiar people. I've met you guys. You're peculiar. But he says, you are his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. So I love this because the whole point is they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would obtain mercy by the shedding of blood on the mercy seat where the priests would meet on their behalf before the place of worship. So, The New Testament teaches that we are all, as Christians, the royal priesthood of God. No garments, no holy water, no precious blood to sprinkle. We get to just walk in. But our main duty is obedience, first and foremost individually, but also we, you and I, represent God to man with our lives. When they see us, They know we're Christians. We represent his kingdom in their lives, good, bad, and otherwise. Whether it's we're failing and we needed grace, we thank God for that grace, we have joy, or whether we're doing great and we can point people to the Father unblemished. But my point is we represent God to man, but we also have the responsibility and the pleasure of representing man to God. Stop complaining about the unbelievers in your life who don't live God's way. They're not going to. They don't know how to. They're not supposed to. They are living for the world. They're following their own lusts. They serve their father, Satan, just like we used to. We have the responsibility not to complain about them, not to push ourselves away from them, but to pray for them. The priest would go into the Holy of Holies after doing all the work to prepare himself and sprinkling the blood, and then he would pray for sinful people that were completely unaware. They were oblivious of the commandments of God. Some of them had rejected the commandments of God knowing them. They didn't deserve grace or mercy, but he would go in and he would pray on behalf of the nation. Many of times would be in rebellion. So we have that same opportunity to pray for the lost people in our lives instead of rejecting and condemning them. Satan's going to reject and condemn them after they fall to sin. We have the availability and the grace we've received to go and give out to them. So the purpose that we have 
We have been chosen for this purpose. We have been and are being currently cleansed for this purpose. We don't even have to do the work. Jesus is doing it if we'll let him. The purpose that we've been cleansed and chosen for is to obey God's commands and reveal his love through the results of simple obedience. Obeying is a testimony to the world that words can never give. There's feet to your faith. People are going to ask why. Why are you different? Why don't you celebrate the sin that we celebrate? They won't call it sin. Why don't you celebrate the things we celebrate? Why do you mourn over the things we're excited about? And at the same time, why are you different? But at the same time, the purpose is to show and tell those around us that the only way to meet with God is on His terms. Stop encouraging people that don't know Jesus when they say, I'll pray for you. (laughs) I don't know how to attempt it. There are people that tell me that they're going to pray for me all the time that I know don't know Jesus, and I don't know how to go, who are you praying to? How do you do that with grace? How do you do that with truth? But we need to. No one can approach Jesus. No one can approach the Father without the blood of Jesus applied to their life. No one. I agree with my pastor who has said that he doesn't believe that hell is actually uh, eternity without God. He believes that hell is eternity without the covering of Jesus with God. Our unrighteousness being judged for eternity in his presence. Our God is a consuming fire. In his presence and the shed blood of Jesus, there's joy, there's enjoyment, there's gracious living, there's everything that you and I desire now, it's going to be there. It's going to be comfortable. It's going to be fellowship with God. But without the blood of Jesus applied to our life, his pleading on our behalf, uh, there's the wrath of God. He still is the God of the Old Testament that is wrathful against sin and judges and punishment punishes rebellion. And so the purpose is to show those around us that the only way to meet with God is on his terms. We can't approach him any way we want through applying the blood of Jesus to their life, just like us. So we were saved for good works, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says. What do these good works look like? How do I narrow down what my purpose should be? The reality is it doesn't look, I think, like any of us think. We don't have to be a pastor. We don't have to be a worship leader. We don't have to be somebody out on the curb with a billboard. Uh, what it looks like is living a trust-filled life with him. So I know that we're running short on time, but I'm going to turn to Jeremiah because I think that this is a word from the Lord. As I was studying this week, I thought of this passage, and I don't think that I would have thought of it any other way than the Lord putting it on my plate. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 1 through 14. Jeremiah 20. So the nation of Israel had been rebellious. They'd rejected God's commands. They weren't approaching God the way he was supposed to. They were serving other gods. God judged them. He sent them off to a nation that they did not know that was full of idols. And while they were there, they had two options. They could be bitter and they could just give up on God. They could stop following him or they could repent and live for him as exiles in a land full of confusion and idols. So in Jeremiah chapter 20, it says, Now Peshur, the son of Emer, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things, 
And then Peshur struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, who was by the house of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of context to this that I don't have time to go into. But it happened on the next day that Peshur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. And Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Peshur, but Magor Misabib. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and all your friends. I feel like I'm in the wrong passage here. Yeah, I don't know where I'm... Oh, sorry. It's Jeremiah 29. That's what it is. I'm like, I don't remember reading any of this. See, just go with confidence. You guys were in. You were just enjoying it. You're going for it. In the meantime, I'm, I'm not confident inwardly. I'm going, what in the world am I reading? I did not study that. Okay, Jeremiah 29. Who knows Jeremiah 29, 11? I think we all do. Many of us have it in our houses. For I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for a future and a hope. Okay, so here's the context of that. Now these are the words, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive. See, see the parallel between First Peter and Jeremiah here? These people are exiles. They've been sent out of the land. They've been stolen away from their home. A letter to the priests and the prophets. Huh. We were called to be a nation of priests and prophets. He says, uh, And all the people from Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah and the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I caused, look at that, whom I caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he tells them to do while they were there. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to your husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased and not diminished. Seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely that you, in my name, I have not sent them, says the Lord, to cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places that I've driven you. Says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. For us as believers, we've been scattered. God's called us to live here and be faithful, to build homes and live in them, to have children as we're able, to multiply and not be diminished. But many of us, maybe we're not at the age where we're going to be having children. Have children spiritually. 
Invest in the next generation. Build up a new generation of faith. And pray for the peace of the place that you live in. Because in its peace, you will experience peace. And look forward to the day when all of us who are scattered among the nations, we are a holy nation, we are a priest nation, we represent God to man and man to God, and one day God's going to take not just the American Christians, not just the African Christians, but the Christians all over the world, he's going to gather us all from being spread out and bring us back to be this holy nation and build his kingdom. That's going to be a very real kingdom that we're going to get to serve Jesus as king together. But until then, live where you've been placed. Live as your call. Bloom where you're planted, however you want to say it. Ephesians 5.1, imitate your God, be like him, desire to be more like him each day. And then Peter blesses them back in the second verse. I know we got far today. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Peter knew they would need grace for this. He knew that they would need peace, peace that the world doesn't give. He knew that they needed these more than anything to empower them to live as they're called. The grace of God shared to others through us will change people. If you want to know what changes people's lives, show them grace, unmerited favor. Treat them like you'd want to be treated. Treat them like God's treated you, and they, their lives will change. The peace of God that we have is what people, when they see it in us, even though life's chaotic, even though we get called out, even though things aren't always simple, the peace of God that we carry with us for our earthly pursuits, instead of, excuse me, the peace of God that we have is what people are really looking for in all of their earthly pursuits, in all of their pursuit of relationships, in all of their pursuits of success and careers and you name it, the next speedboat or the next, you know, whatever. Um, they're, they're pursuing the peace that only God can give. And so as we have that peace and we walk in that peace, they're going to want that if we live in it. So Father, um, re- remind us this week who we are. Remind us that this is not our home. Help us not to be too comfortable here. And yet, Lord, help us to live as we're called in a full trusting relationship with you as we are here. Help us to seek the benefit of our neighbors. Help us to love those who are in our families and in our church. Lord, help us to love those who we do not love. Help us to love those who have hurt us. Help us to love our enemies as Jesus did, recognizing that we used to be Jesus' enemies. And Father, as we do that, Lord, you've set us apart for this calling. Help us to go everywhere we go, sprinkling the blood. I thank you so much that we don't have to sprinkle actual blood, but that the, the blood of Jesus spread over our lives could be applied to the lives of those around us, that we could let them know you can't approach God without Jesus' blood, without trusting his salvation. And may that pave the way so that they could be in fellowship with God and how that would change our neighborhoods how that would change our valley. Lord, we long to see you make that impact through us. Lord, we're willing. Help us. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.